Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm Anne McElvoy, and welcome to the second of our World in 2017 specials. This week, it's the world in instability. I've just received a call from Secretary Clinton. But the British people have made a very clear decision to take a different path. We'll be touring an uncertain globe of fear. The biggest difference between a Trump presidency and an Obama presidency is probably predictability. On nuclear weapons, I'm afraid my prediction is in 2017, we're not going to make much progress. Chaos. Yeah, greater uncertainty for already the least stable place on the face of the planet. And concern. Exploring everything from the world after Trump to the future of refugees and immigration. I don't think there'll be a major conflict, but you've got to keep an eye on North Korea. Yeah, so my assumption is that people are going to move in in big, big, big numbers. My name may not be on the ballot, but our progress is on the ballot. Tolerance is on the ballot. Democracy is on the ballot. And I promise you that I will not let you down. But first, I should introduce my guide to the world in 2017, who will, as usual, be joining me throughout the show. It's the World In editor, Daniel Franklin. Hello, Daniel. Hello, Anne. We've called this show The World In Instability, and goodness, 2016 gave us enough of that to be analysing, pondering on, and thinking where that's going to take us. Do you expect the same trajectory in global politics in 2017? of potential for that, um, partly because of the follow-through from the elections that happened and the voting that happened in 2016. So the Brexit saga is one that's going to run throughout 2017 and obviously Donald Trump comes into office and all the adjusting to that will happen. But there are plenty of other elections, big elections, um, not least in Europe. One of the factors that the world is going to be watching very closely is whether this rebellious spirit is going to carry on in the elections in 2017. One thing that we discuss a lot here at The Economist, and I'm sure other people do too, is the sense that they didn't see this instability coming and the scale that it did. Do you think we've got a better handle on it now? I think certainly one of the things that's changed is that there's a sense that you might expect the unexpected. So, for example, if you take the French election, perhaps the most significant election coming up in 2017, uh, you may not expect that Marine Le Pen of the far-right National Front will actually win, but it would be much less surprising now if she did win than it would have been before uh, the Trump upset. So I think people are looking at this phenomenon uh, of anti-establishment surges and indeed a mistrust of opinion polls in a way that that means that people are bracing themselves much to a much greater extent to political upsets than was the case uh, a year ago. To try and get ahead of the game, we went to Hong Kong, Singapore and Beijing to meet some of the thinkers and influencers who are going to help shape 2017 from an Asian perspective. In Singapore, I had a chance to speak to Chering Tobgay, the Prime Minister of Bhutan. 
Now, he struck me as a rather unusual politician with a great spirit of openness and a particular perspective. Was that also your impression, Daniel? I, I, I totally agree with that, and I think it, it was refreshing. And it, it, it's fascinating to hear someone who comes at both life and politics from a rather different angle from your typical, often rather leaden, uh, extremely... Um, uh, manufactured politics from us. One of the things that obviously was refreshing to voters about Donald Trump was that he was so uh, different from your typical politician. Well, here's someone who is prime minister of a country that is certainly distinctive, who just gives a, a, a fresh view on life and the world. So, Jobgate, should we have a look at the rise of populism and strong men leaders as, as we look in, at the end of this year and looking into the year ahead? Where do you think that leaves moderate leadership, technocratic leadership at this time? It depends on uh, what you see me as. Uh, do you see me as a strong man or a, a moderate technocratic leader? What it, do you it, see <laughs> you as? <laughs> but I get the question. The rise of populism uh, is an indicator that governments are not doing enough. It's as simple as that. We blame populist leaders we almost we are almost incriminating we say that they are misleading the people by using populist strategies and promises but I think that it is possible only because governments and politicians in particular have not served the people better had they done that had they improved a lot of our people uh, strong men, as you put it, and populist leaders wouldn't stand a chance. So what do you think should be done now to defend liberal values, evidence-based policy, a lot of the things that you've talked about in the context of Bhutan as a, a new democracy, if you like, how can it become both freer and more prosperous, but within the, the confines of the situation that we find ourselves in? Education. There's no way around it. Better education. The earlier you start, the better it is. The longer education is made available, the more effective it is. And listening. Leaders and the so-called intelligentsia, including the media, must listen. It's too easy, or rather too often, we get caught up in our own bubble. We construct our own reality and we lose touch with what's happening. And the more we live within our own construct, the more dangerous it becomes. So how has that logic taken you in the position of developing from the idea of gross national happiness? Now, some people say that you're moving away from that as such a guiding idea as Bhutan had become very well known for on the world stage. Do you think it's a, become a, a bit of a distraction or too much faith has been placed in it? I use the word distraction, that GNH is becoming a distraction. And I used it on a very, very specific context. And the context is, some of us were beginning to talk about GNH a bit too much. Some of us were still, were beginning to preach it. And worse, even yet, some of us were touring the world preaching GNH. That is a distraction from the real work which is implementing GNH at home.
you implement the principles of GNH. You construct policies to implement GNH at home. And that takes hard work. GNH is very serious business. It's too seductive to talk about GNH as an alternate form of development approach, a philosophy. And you have people listen to you and they can actually seduce you with that adulation. And that is no good for my country and my people. Yes, one of my responsibilities is to talk about it once in a while. But ultimately, it is to implement it. What are the big changes that you expect to come in your own country, in Asia, maybe beyond in 2017? And if possible, what's a change that people predict will come that you don't think will happen? There's a concept that all nations take seriously called nation building. I think of planet building as being very important. Now, while it is very difficult, the task of nation building is very difficult and involves many things, the task of planet building is actually in some ways much simpler. You need to protect anything that could destroy the planet. And there are three things in my view that can destroy a planet as we know it. One is disease, pandemics. One is nuclear weapons. We bomb ourselves to oblivion. And the, other, the third one is climate change. Now my prediction is climate change, we will make progress towards addressing the dangers of climate change. My prediction is on pandemics, we will take the eradication of some mosquitoes very seriously. But on nuclear weapons, I'm afraid my prediction is in 2017, we're not going to make much progress. Our thanks to Chairing Topgay, and we'll be hearing more from the Asian perspective later on. First, though, while Donald Trump's election campaign was an inward-looking one that mostly consisted of promises to help problems at home, the most significant impact of a US president is often felt abroad. Well, America is the most powerful country in the world. Still, it has an extraordinarily intricate network of alliances. People around the world are watching what happens in America and thinking, well, what do we do next? How do we plan our futures in the light of how America is going to be in the next four years and beyond? We thought we'd call up some of our correspondents and editors around the globe to get a sense of how the world is bracing itself for a Trump presidency. So I'm Tom Nuttall, the Charlemagne columnist. It's interesting, for a man whose campaign sort of seesawed all over the place, sympathy for, or even empathy for, for Vladimir Putin in the Kremlin was a, was a constant of this campaign. So I think the fear for a lot of Europeans is that the White House under Trump attempts to forge an early deal with Vladimir Putin. I heard this described in Berlin as Yalta 2.0, a deal that would be struck over the heads of the Europeans. Lots of European countries fear this, but I think it's also true that Trump in the White House makes it much harder for Angela Merkel, the German Chancellor, who has been holding the line, who's been keeping Europe together on Russia. It becomes much harder, harder for her to do that job. I'm Max Rodenbeck, and I'm a South Asia bureau chief in New Delhi. India will be welcoming of Trump's uh, tougher stand on China, perhaps. It remains to be seen exactly what Trump does with China, but I think India would like to see America standing up to China to a certain extent. I think that Trump and Modi may, may very well get along because both of them are great showmen. I mean, they understand politics as, as, as showmanship, and they understand how important it is to act, act things out. They are absolutely you know, strong patriots. And they're also, both of them are deal makers. So I, I think, in fact, there may be a strong personal relationship. I'm Jonathan Rosenthal, the Africa editor. There are a few things and a few broad uh, points that people are making. 
The first is a, is, is a great concern that actually Africa will just be neglected. It doesn't seem to fit in with any of the key strategic interests or concerns that Donald Trump has about the world. Another key concern revolves around HIV. The US has for years run a program called PEPFAR that currently supports about 11.5 million uh, Africans who have HIV and is, is supporting them with treatment. There is a real concern that Donald Trump will look at this and say, why are Americans paying to keep Africans alive and cut that? So I'm Stephanie Studer, Seoul Bureau Chief in South Korea. He would support the nuclearization of South Korea and also would think about withdrawing troops, American troops. There are 28,000 odd here from South Korea. So this would be a complete upending of American policy towards the peninsula if that were to happen. Trump did say that he would consider sitting down to a hamburger with Kim Jong-un, which actually might be a breakthrough. So I think that was well received by people who support engagement rather than sanctions. Many people have commented that uh, Donald Trump's presidency looks set to be very unpredictable. So I think that they will probably in North Korea wait to see what a Trump administration means before provoking. I'm Tom Wainwright. I'm the Britain editor. I think Trump's election comes at a time when Britain already was facing great uncertainty in terms of its relations with foreign countries. 2016 was the year of Brexit for Britain. And to have its relationship with the United States given a, a bit of a jolt at a time when its relationship with its other main allies in Europe was also uh, going through a period of change means that it's come at a, a particularly tough time for Britain. One other thing that I think Britain should keep an eye on is security, because during the Brexit campaign, many of the Brexiteers pointed out that really leaving the European Union isn't too much of a worry for Britain because it still has its alliance uh, with NATO. It's still partnered with countries, including the United States, which guarantees Britain's security. With Donald Trump now, that is more in question than it has been in the past. He's been very equivocal in his uh, statements on NATO. And so many people who thought that leaving the EU was safe because we're under the umbrella of American protection may now be somewhat less confident than they were 12 months ago. Nick Pellon, Middle East correspondent. I think the overwhelming uh, impact of uh, Donald Trump's election as president for the Middle East is that it adds just yet greater uncertainty for already the least stable place on the face of the planet. There's a sense that American policy is lurching in a really quite a radical way away from its former path and that is just going to lead to even greater volatility in the region. However, there was a common theme for many correspondents. No one knows. It's completely impossible to make meaningful predictions as to how this relationship is going to work. The biggest difference between a Trump presidency and an Obama presidency is probably predictability. A lot of uh, what people are expecting is really speculative. It's still very difficult to know what a President Trump would mean. No, I think he's still very much a, a wild card. There's quite a mystery all over the world about what Trump is going to do at this stage. Our thanks to Nick, Tom, Max, Stephanie, Jonathan and Tom. And if you have any thoughts or predictions on the new world order or disorder, don't hesitate to send us them. We're on Twitter at Economist Radio or you can email us radio at economist.com. Next up on our Asia tour was Hong Kong. And there we met with Sri Lankan Prime Minister Ranul Vikramasinghe. So, Daniel, why him? 
for two reasons, really. One is Sri Lanka is uh, an example of a country that is recovering post-conflict. So there are many of those countries around the world. So how it copes with the legacy of its conflict and starts to grow, it's growing very fast. It's a relatively rapid growing economy. Secondly, and perhaps even more importantly, it's bang in the middle of the the big trade flows around the world. It it's, uh, looks to Asia, but it also looks to Europe, where it has colonial ties, and it looks to America, and it's very concerned about how the mix of those players in its future development will play out. So it, it brings together the great streams and currents that are affecting the world in 2017. It will feel them, and it will be responding to them. Prime Minister, give me a sense of the way that you see the big challenges of 2017 for the region, for the wider world, and the kind of role that you would like to be playing in that. It's actually a world in transition. I think 9-11 and the 2008 mega financial crisis has brought about this change. And what is going to happen in 2017 is that the new American president, Donald Trump, will put forward his policies and we will also see what is happening in the European Union. When will British uh, evoke Article 50 and what is going to be the conditions and terms? That to a large extent will determine what happens in the coming few years. So in a sense, it's a very uncertain world and new relationships are building up. Let's talk about uh, the advent of, of Donald Trump. And the rise of populism or strongman leaders, how do you think the argument for good policy can be made in an era when a lot of people seem to have an electoral charm that isn't really about policy? So I I think it's going to be medium term before the policies emerge. There's going to be conflicts, there'll be policies they'll try out, some that'll fail. So you have to expect some bumps on this road. The rock and roll ride. Yeah, it's going to be that. Climate change is something that's been particularly important to you. You've, you've, you've talked a lot about it, its impact on the region and your own thoughts on that. How do you think you go at that uh, in the age of Trump? Can you recenter efforts perhaps more to the east, more on Asia? Well, Asia will have to take a lead, but the US counts because money counts. And some of the countries like India, some of the others uh, are also looking at the cost of it. So if the funding from U.S. is reduced, if there's similar sentiment in some of the other countries, then certainly it will slow down the pace of the environmental change. It won't stop that. But I think the popular opinion and public opinion is for the climate change agreement But people will, in the short term, look at their own economic advantage over climate change. Do you find that difficult, a difficult argument to make at home? No, not not at home. We we haven't got that argument at home because uh, environmentally, I think our targets are safe. But it seems to be a problem in India where they feel that it will be a damper on growth. I don't think it will be such a big challenge as far as the region is concerned because the new technology is available. But money is involved, and the availability of money will decide the pace. The Economist uh, recently wrote rather complimentary things about your growth rates, but said you needed to get better at collecting taxes next year. Are you going to get better at getting some taxes from <laughs> people who may not be volunteering to pay them? No, no, we, we, are, we, are, we are increasing. The revenue. We, we came down to about 10% of the GDP revenue collection went low. 
from a high we had about 20, then it was about 18, and we are gradually clawing our way back to about 14 to 15 percent by 2020. It's how to tackle the black economy without causing a major disruption since we are having an increase in our rate of growth. I'm just going to ask you to finish, Prime Minister, with a prediction for 2017, and we, we've asked all of our guests for these, so it could be a large one, but feel free to make it a smaller or more precise one if you like, and I'd also like you to ask, uh, ask you to choose something that you don't think will happen in 2017. I don't think there'll be a major conflict, but you've got to keep an eye on North Korea. What I could see in 2017 uh, is the, that the major powers will have to start uh, discussing and renegotiating the global order. That's, that's going to be a long-term project. But uh, maybe Donald Trump take, uh, taking as president, we spark that debate off, and that's, that's an answer one. Thank you very much. Now, after a year in British politics, where the debate over whether to leave the European Union dominated the headlines, we look ahead to a year where a new Brexit debate is looming. Hard or soft variety? Daniel, what's on the menu? Well, the thing about Brexit, of course, is we, we had the vote, but Britain hasn't actually done anything about it yet. And 2017 is the year when things start to actually get put into practice. We, we do the, the, the famous triggering of Article 50, almost certainly the plan is to do that by the end of March. Will it be a hard Brexit where we come right out of the single market, a kind of bracing out in the cold, but with a greater degree of recapturing of, of sovereignty over, for example, free movement of people who we let into the country? Or will it be softer where we try to keep as much of the existing economic arrangements of the European Union, but at the cost of perhaps accepting a degree of payments into the European budget and a degree of uh, loss of control over who gets to come into the country? Now, both options are still on the table. So which way will the needle finally swing? We asked political editor John Pete to clue us in with his Brexit barometer. John Pete's Brexit barometer. Factor. The economy. Well, if the economy remains robust, I think it's quite likely that people will say the scare stories about um, Brexit leading to a disaster for the economy will, will not be believed, and therefore it's more likely that we will have a hard Brexit. If the economy starts to turn down and unemployment starts to go up, then, then people may say, look, Brexit is doing damage to the economy, and that might incline them towards more towards having a soft Brexit to minimise the damage. Factor. Foreign investment. If uh, large foreign investors start in the next year or two to pull out of the UK on the grounds that they need to be inside the European single market, this would be car makers, banks and others, then I think it's more likely that people will say we need to have a soft form of Brexit in order to remain attractive to foreign investors. If foreign investors say we like being in the UK anyway, then people are more likely to say, well, we can have a hard Brexit. Factor. Immigration. If the numbers of migrants coming from the world, but also, but particularly from the European Union, fall significantly over the next couple of years, then I think people's anxiety about migration might diminish. And I think that, that could lead to a softer form of Brexit. If, on the other hand, migration continues to be in the 300,000s, with about half of that coming from the European Union, then more people will say, we were right to vote for Brexit, we want to take back control over the migration ourselves. 
Factor. Westminster politics. It's mainly inside the Conservative Party that there will be a battle over the terms of, of Brexit between particularly the three pro-Brexit ministers led by David Davis and the Chancellor's Exchequer, Philip Hammond, who will be more worried that Brexit might damage the economy. And I think in this political battle, whoever wins that will be very decisive for the question of whether we have a hard Brexit, which is what the Brexit ministers will want, or a softer version, which is what the Chancellor will want. Factor. Public opinion. I think the biggest question of all over Brexit is whether voters during the next year or two start to think that perhaps it's a mistake or perhaps Brexit would not be quite delivering quite the things that they wanted. Many people who voted Leave believed that it was a cost-free thing to do, that Britain could leave the European Union without having any suffering any economic consequences and life would go on as before. But, of course, a referendum is just a snapshot at, at, at any one time, and, and this referendum was won only by 52 to 48%. So if, during the next two years, it looks as if people are beginning to have second thoughts, there is a possibility that towards the end of that period people, there, there may be demands for, for, a, for a rethink and possibly even a fresh referendum. At the moment, I think that's unlikely, but things can change. Verdict. I think it's too up in the air, actually, and I don't think I would know. I, I, I think this is going to be the big battle for the, for the year. Uh, I'm probably, I would, I mean, at the moment, I'm still thinking they're heading towards a hard Brexit, but I think during the next year, things could change. Oh, thanks there to John Pete. Now, finally, for many people, the consequence and the source of instability has been migration. From refugees fleeing collapsed nations and war zones to economic migrants looking to build better lives in wealthier countries, the movement of people was a constant feature of debate in 2016. And it's seen multiple countries rejecting the idea. Refugees from Syria, Iraq and North Africa are struggling to find European countries willing to accommodate them. Donald Trump fired up supporters with talk of a great wall to keep out economic migrants from Mexico. But what will this backlash mean for refugees with nowhere left to go? And does the political rejection of open borders really mean the end of mass economic migration? Social policy editor and immigration expert Joel Budd sat down with Emma Hogan, our Europe correspondent, who spent much of this year reporting on the migrant crisis in the Mediterranean. Hello, Emma. Hi, Joel. So where are we up to with the row over who is going to take the refugees who are coming westwards from Syria and also northwards from Africa? At the moment, it's been sort of stuck in Europe. Uh, There's around 60,000 refugees that are stranded in Greece in camps. There are many, many refugees in Germany and Sweden, which have taken several. But there's still many countries in Eastern Europe that do not want to have any. So at the moment, the EU28 is sort of still arguing over what will happen to all of these asylum seekers that made their way to Europe in 2015. Meanwhile, there are still many more making the journey from Africa. So still a lot of refugees probably coming, still a lot of difficulty. Exactly. I think the most worrying aspect for Europe in, in, in the years to come also is the central Mediterranean route. So people making their way from Libya to Italy. Uh, Unlike Turkey, there's no interlocutor in Libya for the EU to try and make deals with. So the EU is is trying to make deals with with Mali, for example, to keep people within transit countries. Uh, They're trying to send people back and and think more creatively about how do you return 
people who have had their asylum applications uh, turned down, how do you return them to those countries? Uh, forced returns are incredibly expensive and people do not want to be shipped on a plane back to where they've crossed, you know, Saharan Desert and then the central Mediterranean to, 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 to leave. So this is something that's going to be a long-running problem for, for Europe. Joel, you write about this, about how migration will, will continue. I mean, what, what, what do we see happening in the next couple of decades or so? Yeah, so I just take a guess at this, um, but it's a, it's a guess based on the fundamentals of uh, supply and demand. So I, I suppose I'm just thinking about the kind of global supply of kind of potential migrants and, and the global demand for them. And the conclusion I come to is that although European politicians and indeed European people are not going to like it very much, uh, I think the total amount of migration to the West and specifically to Europe is going to go up. Why is this happening? The potential pool of migrants is more or less the pool of young people. And the pool of young people is growing incredibly fast in Africa, which is, of course, right next to Europe. And also, Africans are becoming more urban and quite a lot more urban and uh, uh, somewhat wealthier. And as people go from being very, very poor to merely poor, they become much, much more likely to migrate. So you've been out on a boat in the Mediterranean with Médecins uh, Sans Frontières and, and you, you will have noticed there that a lot of the people who are migrating are not from the poorest countries in Africa. They're not from countries like Mali. They're often from wealthier countries like Côte d'Ivoire or Senegal or Nigeria. Um, and that's very typical. So, so the sheer number of those people uh, who are who are potentially prepared to migrate is going up very, very, very quickly. And even when you account for the fact that the cost of living in Europe is higher, it's simply a much, much, much better deal. If, if you can make it to Europe, you can not only transform your own life and the life of your family, but you can quite likely transform the fortunes of the entire village where you came from. And at the same time, of course, Europe is rapidly, rapidly aging and will need lots and lots of people to care for its aged population. And those sorts of jobs are very, very classically done by immigrants. So my, yeah, so my assumption is that people are going to move in, in big, big, big numbers from Africa to Europe in the next few decades. I, I find it very hard to imagine any other outcome. European politicians have already found it hard making the case to accept refugees in Europe coming from Syria and fleeing war. How do you think they can make the case for basically economic migrants from, from Africa? Yeah, it's going to be pretty difficult. It's rather like trade where the good consequences are hard to discern and they're spread across the entire population. And the bad consequences, you know, you know natives finding it hard to get uh, well-paid working-class jobs are very visible and very, very concentrated. So it's going, to be, it's, it's, it's going to be very, very tough. But one thing I wanted to ask you is sort of, is there anything that policy can do to get migrants in general, but especially refugees, up to speed economically because although natives are probably not delighted by the arrival of lots and lots of people working in the fields, working in hospitals, working in old age homes, etc., 
they like those people a lot more than they like people who come over and are simply unemployed because they don't acquire the skills. So are some European countries sort of like better at dealing with refugees and getting them up to speed than other ones? It really depends on on the labour market. So I think the arrival of of so many people to places like Sweden last year is is making them rethink uh, their welfare policies and that in turn will 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 affect the way that they can integrate people into the labor market i think it's early days to say who's who's doing it best i certainly think that germany is responding to things most quickly by virtue of the fact that it's just taken so many yes it sounds i hate to say it it sounds a bit late to be early days yes. in 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 thinking about this anyway Thanks very much, Emma. Thank you. Our thanks to Emma and Joel. Now, with the upheaval of 2016 in the rearview mirror, it's easy to look ahead and see only trouble looming, especially after this week's violent events in Ankara and Berlin. But Daniel, looking more broadly, do you think this is a year ahead when we'll see instability march on or perhaps maybe optimistically a backlash against the backlash and people opting for a calmer life? We're definitely going to see... Uh, a continuation of those forces because they're deep, powerful forces that have a way to to go still. But what we also may see is a certain holding of the line. So if, for example, the French election goes for the mainstream, if Germany, as it probably will, comfortingly re-elects Angela Merkel, um, if indeed Donald Trump turns out to be in office um, less Um, of an upheaval than perhaps some people expected in advance. You may get to the end of 2017 and think, well, actually things are a bit calmer than they looked at the end of 2016. Daniel, thanks for joining us. Goodbye, Anne, and thank you. Now, positivity will be our theme next week as we look in our final World in Special towards a year not just of problems, but of some solutions to them. 2017 in Ingenuity. We'll be talking to international relations forecaster Para Kanna about the ongoing prospects for globalisation and to Joshua Wong, the 20-year-old activist and protest leader, about what an important year holds for democracy in Hong Kong. Until then, many thanks for listening. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist.